재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Our rock scholar is in the house, a, an expert, a bona fide nerd of information on all things ROK, Republic of Korea. He's here to help us drill down into those things that we kind of know in a superficial way, but we're going to get into the real wonky details. His name is Alex Sigrist. Hey, Alex. Hey, how's it going, Kurt? We're going to talk today about uh, one of Korea's national sports, <laughs> test-taking. Yeah, Standardized test taking. Professionals in this aspect Absolutely. get a lot of training their whole lives in order to conquer this mountain of uh, bubble filling. They are wise <laughs> in the ways of uh, test taking. They have extraordinary test taking kung fu here in Korea. Absolutely. They, I, I don't know how to say it besides they sometimes, you know, their whole life revolves around it sometimes. Mm, and, mm. and we always complain about it kind of superficially, I think. Uh, whether it's teachers, whether it's expats, whether it's Koreans themselves, we always complain about it. And we say the obvious, which is this system needs changed. But I think today, if we kind of go into a little more detail, you, we can kind of arm our listeners maybe with a little bit more, like, better argumentative skills, maybe mm. a little bit more to kind of back up their own claims. Because we're not going to surprise people today. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not good. <laughs> in so many ways, you are your test scores in Korea, right? Your spec is right at the top of how you brand yourself as a person. And uh, especially with regard to learning a new language, ESL, English as a Second Language in specific, your score on the test is not necessarily representative of your ability to use the language and to function in English language environments. We see that over and over and over again, that somebody who nailed it on the test basically has very low ability to function in an English-speaking environment. They should basically just be a professional test taker. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what they need to continue doing. All right. So how do we dive into this? Well, I guess we should always start the same way that we always start with a little bit of a thought experiment. And so for today's thought experiment, uh, we're going to jump into kind of a unique idea when it comes to, I don't know how I should say this, well, anyway, let's just go right into it and think about how you learn a second language as we are doing this. Hmm. So think about a different, difficult topic that you are an expert in. Climate change, medicine, social media, cooking... Any topic you can talk about with someone for hours upon hours. I'll give you a moment. What are you an expert on? All right, got it? Now take a few moments, clear your head, and you're going to tell us about that topic. Out loud or in your head. And you're going to tell us about that topic in the form of a freestyle rap or freestyle slam poetry. Ready? Start to form the rhymes in your head right now and give us information about your topic. Wow. That's Go ahead. Are you ready? You, Kurt, this I, is for you. I, <laughs> <laughs> what was your topic? Uh, you know, uh, 
you 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 listed so many potential ones there. I suppose I could uh, I could talk about basic uh, cooking and kitchen skills, things like that. As know. a rap, though, I think that would be a pretty terrible rap. You know, having learned Korean and also having uh, tried some late night freestyle rap sessions. I can tell you they're pretty similar. If This is the closest way I could explain to someone who's never learned a second language hmm. how hard it is to get across your feelings about a to- topic that you truly love. I've had experiences in class uh, where I've been just like frustrated because I can talk about global warming for hours in English. And in Korean, I can say, uh, global warming, bad, bad. <laughs> don't, uh-huh. trash, go. Yeah. And so it, it's, it becomes frustrating. And the reason I kind of wanted to bring this up is because one of the unfortunate negative outcomes of standardized testing in any society is that it disproportionately harms, of course, those who are taking this test in their second or third or fourth language. Unpack that a little bit. Why? Why does it uh, harm people? Well, in general, there's a study out by the National Research Council. Uh, It was studying, this was in the U.S., studying the No Child Left Behind bill uh, and talking about the many consequences of this test. Now, I guess the simple superficial way that people who are second language learners are harmed on this is a, is you know pretty natural to understand. It's uh, you miss the nuances of a language. Mm-hmm. It takes you longer to read the questions, uh, and you sometimes, if you're not if you're not fluent, it sometimes you have to translate it into your own language. Think of the answer and translate that answer back sure. into the final language. So they are one of the people, uh, along with a large group. So more on that study found that. Uh, English language learners suffered the most as well as, of course, low-income families, the disabled, and minorities in general. Now, that has a little bit to do with um, a lot of the times in countries, minorities are not necessarily economically as powerful and so don't have access to resources that maybe the majority population will have. Mm. But it also has to do with um, you know, dealing with stereotypes of teachers in school or, of, or expectations uh, within the community. Now, there's other stuff, of course. I mean, you can probably guess. What, what, what would you think a negative consequence of having standardized testing, which is kind of the focus? Say, what are the negative consequences of the Sunung or the SAT or the ACT? Well, it, it seems like it sets up a very pass-or-fail mentality. Uh, if you don't hit the numbers that uh, society thinks you should, uh, you have a very uh, instantly bad impression of yourself. It's a very quantitative way of assessing what your worth is, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And those are that, that covers three reasons, right, or three consequences of this from that study, pushing students out of school, lowering student engagement, and also hurting school climate. And so a lot of people, when we talk about tracking, tracking is interesting. It's kind of like you know, following the students, how they're doing. Um, what you end up seeing is that when you're tracking you don't actually help advanced students. If you follow them and you uh, say, hey, good job, you got an A, mm. here's your next level class, or you can go to the advanced class, whatever. In the long run, it doesn't really have much of an effect. You get, the, I guess when you compliment a student or they get a good grade, you do get a temporary boost in energy or maybe commitment, but overall the effects aren't that great, whereas following scores and tracking really hurts people who are in the lower end of the spectrum. It's it's more, in, a, in, a, in another way, it is much more demotivating than it is motivating the test scores. Why is that so? Is it because the lower income groups have fewer ah. other opportunities to distinguish themselves? 
Well, actually, there's, there was more negative parts of the study that were interesting. For some reason, uh, and they didn't go into the details of these reasons, if you are, I mean, if you're white, in Amer- this is an American study, and I assume it holds the uh, same in Korea. If you're of the majority class, of the wealthy class, mm-hmm. uh, you are much more likely to be promoted um, for the same test scores, let's say, to an advanced level or a gifted level class than you would be if you were a minority or uh-huh. someone who's not expected to do well. Ah, uh-huh. so there's like a little bit of a confirmation bias there. Correct. Um, I way back when uh, Barack Obama was first elected, I was oh, in a, yeah. I was in a room uh, with a lot of black people, and mm-hmm. uh, of course they were elated. But um, I was doing interviews with them, and I said, uh, you know, how did how did this happen? I mean, how do you feel? And the person said, well, he's done it the way every other minority or black person succeeds in the United States. Mm-hmm. They work twice as hard yep. or three times as hard to achieve the same results as the privileged classes do. Absolutely, absolutely. And so there's that, you know, that confirmation ba- bias where, to be honest, and probably I probably benefited from that greatly growing up too. It's like, oh, of course, you should definitely go to this AP class. Look at your scores. Mm. You come from a nice family. And there's a lot of people who just take the stereotypes and they help people who are already doing well, which is kind of unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, we talked about how people get promoted uh, it is much more likely for someone from a lower economic class or minority position to also be demoted to the remedial courses, the slower courses, which is not what's recommended by experts. Okay, so in a nutshell, this very, very quantitative way of assessing abilities um, has it, – it's very blunt and very obtuse when it comes to social and demographic differences – according to this study in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we kind of uh, transpose that to the Korea situation? Well, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to do that. Um, of course, we can talk about the economic disparities between different districts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is in America, it's much easier to kind of look at it as, as a race-based thing. Sure. Um, there are economic factors, of course, that are involved. But in Korea, you kind of look at it by district. You know, that's why everyone spends tons of money to get into the wealthier districts of Seoul in order to make sure that their kids have the money. This goes, and then that continues on to overspending on hagwons, but if you're spending on hagwons, you know, if you're going to a, let's say, Gangnam hagwon, you may be getting, spending more money, but your kid also gets a leg up on other people. And of course, yeah. There's a real education arms race in Korea, isn't there? I mean, it's uh, unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere else. You want to go to the right hagwon or the right international school in the right district. I suppose this goes on elsewhere too, but in Korea, it's almost uh, uh, an obsession. Yeah, and so another impact of this test and uh, the way that they run the schooling here is that of the OECD, Korea spends the most money as a percentage of their GDP on education Hmm. uh, compared to any other country. Now, results-wise, internationally, they actually do pretty well. They're uh, they're top uh, five, I believe, roughly. Uh, There's a few countries. uh, China is up there and Hong Kong up there. But in general, they do as well as you expect on generic standardized testing that's Mm -hmm. kind of uh, for an international audience. But it is an expensive and expensive drug. Yeah. It's not really that big of a stretch to call it a national sport, as we kind of joked about at the top. I mean, this is education and performing well on standardized tests is uh, it's like a machine in this country. And you see that evidenced by the fact that uh, here in Korea, you have these superstar teachers. You'll see the posters in the buses with, you know, hey, 
come study under, you know, mm-hmm. Kim, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. their photo is there. And uh, some of these, I, I saw a feature on a major news network on some of these superstar teachers. They make a half a million bucks a year to teach kids in Hagwon. Some more and some yeah. more. And some use social media to make a lot more to do that. Now, this was an interesting thing that I kind of have realized and looked into a little bit is that Koreans don't suffer from one of the problems of standardized testing that U.S. teachers suffer from. And that would be the push. The rate of teachers getting pushed out or quitting out within five years in the U.S. is extremely high. Whereas, as you just mentioned, Koreans teachers do not leave their profession as much as they do in the U.S. Well, it's a civil, it, Korean teachers in public school in the public mm-hmm. school system. That's a civil service job. Yep. So that's pretty sweet. I used to uh, know a, a teacher, and uh, she would get leave, and she would get opportunities mm-hmm. to go and study abroad, and uh, a very steady job that she could come back to. Um, so it's a sweet gig in Korea to be a teacher. Maybe there are complaints about pay and so on, but it's basically a civil service. Service position. Yeah, even pay isn't considered too poor here. It's just a it's a a standard civil servant pay, but sure. it's, but it's great with great pension and great benefits. So I thought that was interesting, and trying to compare that back to the U.S. and maybe it's the level of respect that teachers get. But one advantage that Korea does have is they don't lose teachers as much as you know the, the young people in the United States who quit after three years because they're forced to live up to these testing standards. Because mm-hmm. in the U.S., there's a the, the tests are also there. To check on teachers. That's one yeah. of the reasons they're there. Well, that's a little, that's kind of uh, baked into the no, no child left behind thing, right. right? If you don't get your kids' test scores up, you are out. Yeah, right. <laughs> Forget right. about the kids. They won't be left behind, but you will. <laughs> yeah, and so a lot of teachers in the U.S. get pushed out for that. Korea has a little bit more safety, a little bit more, it's a little more, more difficult to, uh, let's say, get punished or get fired for certain things, whereas in the U.S., you have a little bit. It's a lot more to deal with, I f- feel like. I think because a lot of the psychological burden is shifted onto the students themselves. If they yeah. don't live up to, you know, very tragically, every year or every couple of years around the Sunong time, when those Sunong mm-hmm. results come out, you hear about some kid that uh, didn't do well and, and they jump off a building, you know? Yeah, uh, and that's that was going to be the last kind of major consequence that's related to Korea I would talk about is in the U.S., you hear a lot about a lot of people dropping out of school. It's about maybe they get into drugs or illegal activities, something to make money because they don't have a, a high school degree. In Korea, it's unfortunate, but the negative effect of getting those lower scores than you expected is a little bit more life threatening, if you will. Because it's the Sunong is built up to this make or break moment yeah. in your life. And where you go into school, it's like a, a, a point on a railroad track where you are railroaded into one future or another. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get that high Sunong score and get the option to go to the top university, uh, some students will perceive that as make or break. Yeah. Like I have at the tender age of whatever it is, 18 or 19, I've failed in life, which mm-hmm. is in its in its way, a little bit absurd. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the absence of uh, different level levels and layers of what to do with your life in mm-hmm. Korea. Maybe a vocational track, maybe a creative track, an entrepreneurial track. So much is still focused on institutional futures. Yeah, and this goes back to the whole conversation we had about motivating versus demotivating, and how strong of an influence that is. And and just to be honest. Um, Oh, as a with my experience as a teacher in Korea, when students did well, they they felt 
pretty good about themselves here. They're happy. They know their parents are going to be happy. But that was not comparable to how bad they felt when they did bad. Mm. And and they just, you know, you would see them heartbroken over test scores. You would see them heartbroken over a B yeah. or a B minus. You know, the expectations are so high. So those demotivating, demotivating factors of just seeing numbers can be strong enough to push people over the edge. And that's another unfortunate part of the system that really needs to be looked at. Well, uh, so solve the problem, Alex. Can you do it? Yep. What do you do? Uh, where's the restart I mean, button? <laughs> the power on, power I, off? Well, I mean, you've got these standardized tests, which are useful because they quantify your achievement. They give mm-hmm. you a score, both in your learning and in your life. Uh, but as we've just discussed for the last 10 minutes, that's, that's very limiting and very narrowing of, uh, of a person's genuine abilities. So what's the alternative? I mean, you can't exactly have a subjective mm-hmm. measure. You can't give essay questions in life. Or can you? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, that is kind of the best temporary solution we have for us right now. So think about the Olympics. In the Olympics, you have a bunch of judges who, opt in let's say more of the artistic events, will judge based on a set of standard criteria, but it's still subjective criteria. But they found that if you train judges enough, and whether this be for Olympic sports, whether it be for judging essays, if you judge or if you if you train judges enough, you can get a pretty good standardized grading system mm. that is not as subjective as you and I might think. Mm. I mean, even and just to say that's subjective is, is wrong in a way because even choosing certain multiple choice questions is a subjective choice. Okay. So to assume that is that one is more subjective than the other is wrong as well. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, for the time being, do kind of suggest that we shift to that because then you're allowed to have that creativity. Yeah. So you're, suggest- you're suggesting training up the gatekeepers, the judges, mm-hmm. to be more nuanced and more deep people uh, so that they can make better decisions about the abilities of the students and not just sort of, you know, be like a monkey looking at a test score and saying too high, too low. Absolutely. And so that's kind of the, the only temporary thing I can think of right, uh, right now. But of course, this is a long-term problem that we need to kind of fix and look at because it's a prisoner's dilemma problem really the problem is you know every Korean I've talked to has said we need to change the system I wish I didn't have to send my kids to school Ah. or to Hagwon so okay let's do that so everyone stops sending their kids to school but then how do you beat the system you're the one parent who sends their kid back to Hagwon yeah and so that and your kid wins basically what happens is so in theory everyone should say yes we're going to stop being obsessed with the Hagwon system we're not going to you know send our kids to this school we're going to just make them study during school and then everyone will do better because if we focus on that then the teachers at schools will be better we'll pay schools and there's this theory of that but if you're the one person who breaks in game theory you're the one person who goes back to hogwan or buys a private tutor you win big you win big and that's a problem with the hogwan debate right now is like oh we should need to just limit the number of hogwans that are working on the weekends or whatever and it doesn't solve the problem because then the wealthy just buy private tutors right so it doesn't actually fix this incoming inequality gap that we end up seeing. So let's solve this problem on a society-wide level right after my kid's education is finished. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it, it's slowly changing, and you can hear it in the way that young, the younger generation talks about it. Um, but unfortunately, it's because it's uh, of the hierarchy system and the government and, and policy-making position making positions, that's going to be something that maybe when my generation becomes the leaders will be changing. Uh-huh. But for now, especially, uh, and we can't go into as much detail on this one, 
But especially with the power that the education industry, the private education industry has in Korea, I don't see that as something that will change in the near future. And even talking to Koreans, they, while they acknowledge the problem, are very, let's just say, pessimistic about the potential of getting this changed. And this is not just a limited, sort of limited to the sphere of education kind of problem. This has knock-on effects to the extent that you could even link the declining birth rate to this problem because people just don't want to deal with this whole education thing in their life. I think that was the most kind of surprising revelation of it all, is thinking about how it affects the birth rate. And it affects it in so many ways. Whether it's you have to pay for your kid's education, so both the man and the woman are in, in jobs right now, so they don't have time to raise a family, but also because it's stressful on the parents to have kids try and beat the system themselves. So it's that's one way to maybe work on the birth rate problem is to sort of work on this problem right now. Boom. And that is a good note to end on. A nice wonky look at the issue of standardized tests in Korean society. Rock Scholar, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And Koreascape is produced by E.Q. Huang. Associate production is done by Jamie Lee. Writing by GP1. I'm Kurt Asian. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Koreascape is the handle. We're back tomorrow with Did You Know and our expat segment, Why Here? For those of you in Seoul, Amy in the Morning is next. And the rest of you, Hello Korea is coming your way. We'll see you tomorrow morning.